Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm uh, Paul Axton, and this morning I'm here with uh, Jonathan Toddy. And today we're continuing a discussion of Luke Timothy Johnson's book on constructions of Paul. Today, in particular, the way that Paul handles scripture, Johnson then does detail the differences that you're going to find in Paul and the particular approach that he takes. We're going to try to to detail that a bit and talk about what is it that Paul's doing and from that, then, how do we, we go about it? Have I introduced that about right, John? Yeah, I think so. That Definitely in the parts of the book that we talked about last time, and then the three chapters that we're looking at this time, I think what Johnson is navigating is a recent scholarship on Paul as much as anything else. And so I, I think that's right. He's kind of trying to put out there uh, a new foundation to work with or uh, a way of thinking about who Paul was that doesn't overreach would be the way that I would I would think about it. And I think he sees a huge problem in the modern academy of overreach both with what we could possibly know about Paul or taking little clues and then deciding that's uh, who St. Paul was and then filtering his letters through those little clues as if it was a a total systematic theology. And I think Johnson's wanting to pull back from that and be a little bit more strict about what we, what's actually happening in the New Testament. And if that doesn't give us full biographical information about St. Paul, that's okay. Let me see if the approach that I'm bringing in things that I've been thinking about There are basically two ways of coming at Scripture. One is to fit it to a frame of some sort that we already have. And, of course, I think that's our natural tendency. And we often refer to the Jews as a people of the book. And, of course, I think part of what Luke Timothy Johnson is doing is saying, yeah, but that meant different things for different people. And it's going to sort itself out different with Philo and even uh, Josephus does a history. And actually, he's using Mm -hmm. the Bible, but he rewrites it all so that uh, there's no miracles and, and really does rewrite it from top to bottom. And it seems that what Paul is doing, that his world really is founded in the thought forms of Scripture and that, uh, that it is within that realm, and then you add Christ to that. And that gets at maybe the, the difference that Johnson is detailing. First of all, is that correct? And how would you expand on it? Yeah, I think uh, we can go further on just a couple of points. Uh, but I think that's, yeah, that's fundamentally correct. So what Johnson is doing with Paul is locating him in a specific tradition of even reading scripture. So, of course, when we say scripture, and at this time we mean the Old Testament, but we can even be more clear that we mean the Septuagint. And so what we already have by the time we get to Paul reading those texts is a tradition that's up and running, of which is adding uh, you know, commentary to the text and imagining that by adding commentary that there's more understanding than when you started with, which... 
uh, perhaps isn't the way some modern people would approach biblical studies. Um, but, and of course, the Midrashic tradition that each commentator that adds more information to what they see in the text or how they're interpreting it has to be dealt with from then on. And so that's a part of what you have in St. Paul. That's how he's trained. So he knows the Septuagint, but he's also trained in the school of reading the Septuagint. And it's probably a Pauline school in the sense that Paul is teaching his companions and that Paul is educating them in uh, the Septuagint scriptures that is the background for the writing of many of the New Testament letters. So that Paul's letters don't follow very well any of the set forms that, say, one might have learned had they had a higher education in the Greek world, in the Hellenistic world. And yet, Paul is a Hellenistic diaspora Jew in the sense that he's using the Septuagint, but he's not probably very well trained in uh, a specific school of Greek philosophy or anything like that, or in rhetoric. And that's recently people have turned towards those sorts of things to try to say what's going on in a, in a book like Romans or uh, Galatians or 1 Corinthians or then, you know, the personal letters, they look for those clues. Well, Paul doesn't seem to be doing that all that well, and that's probably because he didn't put a lot of stock in that project. But what Paul is trained in is a way of discourse that works with the scriptures of the Old, what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint. And it most likely is a bit of that dialogical working out the text with his students that provides the rhetorical structure for the letters. So uh, on the flip side, we shouldn't imagine that the epistles don't have any rhetorical structure, that actually they probably are very highly edited uh, letters written for a specific purpose and a point to each of Paul's various audiences. And so that's what you know, Johnson was arguing a little bit in the first section of the book, to be able to say that they're all authoritatively Pauline, even if Paul wasn't putting his pen to the paper or even dictating word for word to a scribe. Paul is very much the authority figure behind putting these letters together, and they are well-crafted, but they're crafted out of this pharisaical way of reading and studying the Septuagint. And so it's all that, plus Paul happens to have encountered the risen Lord, and so that even places him on a more dialectical position towards the Septuagint scriptures. So how does he reinterpret, or how does he interpret what he takes to be true, and the words of God in some sense, uh, along with, here's Jesus Christ, and it's all about Jesus Christ, and so that has to fit in some way. Which is a very, as you were saying, that's a different approach to uh, one way, so several ways of reading Scripture. Well, uh, detail for us then, you know, when you say a pharisaical reading of the Septuagint. Why the Septuagint, and what does that mean, pharisaical? So, yeah, uh, both good questions. Um so why perhaps isn't Paul using a Hebrew text or something like that? Partially because he is a diaspora Jew and knows Greek, but partially because even in a place like Jerusalem, where Paul goes to study, they're using the Greek scriptures. So this is, I think, a, a way of sort of de-arming a whole conversation that has been going on for the last hundred years about, you know, is there an, a fundamental, probably, core that's Jewish and Hebraic, 
to the first Christianity, and then the Apostle Paul comes along and he takes this Hellenized version and spreads it around the world, and that's what the the church in the next century picks up and runs with. Uh, I think Johnson has a way of saying, well, neither of those things are true, so let's pull back, because there's no historical evidence for one, and that doesn't even make a lot of sense in, say, first century Judaism. So what is the place of the Septuagint? And the Septuagint has uh, a primary place even in the schools functioning in Jerusalem, where we think Paul received his Pharisaical education. And then Pharisaism, we probably run into a danger when we think in terms of dividing up all first century Jews into these sects, Pharisees, Essenes, uh, Sadducees. Uh, What was probably more likely is that you have Essenes and Pharisees and you have Sadducees, and in some way those are all people who are more educated or more committed, as zealots as well, you know, more committed than your average Jewish person. Well, the school that Paul fits into of those happens to be Pharisaism. And so he's learned how to read the Torah in a specific way that both accounts for a belief in resurrection, uh, accounts for a more antagonistic stance towards Roman rule. Uh, They're wanting to be a true Jewish kingdom. They take the prophets seriously as a part of what's going on there. And that's the way Paul has been trained to read and appreciate the Septuagint scriptures, which also explains somewhat, you know, why he would be so antagonistic uh, to early Christians. Because as a good Pharisee, Christianity looks like some form of uh, idolatry or blasphemy. And so it does take an encounter with the risen Lord for Paul then to have to rework uh, how he understands the Hebrew Bible But even in the midst of that, it's not as if he necessarily quits thinking in terms of one who is schooled in this pharisaical tradition. It would have been quite helpful to him. Johnson seems to be saying several things. That First of all, you have the Septuagint being used in Jerusalem. And it's not because of Hellenistic influence. Well, it is because of Hellenistic influence. I thought what your point there was that it was the, in other words, to say that they were using the Septuagint did not mean that they were doing a Hellenistic philosophical approach. Well, I think, so uh, that is what I was trying to parse and maybe just not clear enough. So that, yes, the word world is very much Hellenized, but in saying that, it doesn't mean that, say, any Jew who is using the Septuagint is automatically going to be as well-educated in Greek philosophy as, say, somebody like Philo. One of the things Johnson does is contrast, say, Paul as a Pharisaic Jew and where his commitments lie to somebody like Philo, who has taken on much more Greek philosophy and has obviously received training in uh, the upper levels of the Greek padea or the Greek education system, whereas Paul hasn't. So he knows Greek, and he's been influenced. You know, they're all living in this Hellenized world, in this world where uh, you have to move in between uh, what has been brought by Greek culture, whatever your local customs and commitments are to who you are as a, a person more locally, and then also orient all of that to Roman rule. And of course, Paul's also a Roman citizen, which would have given him somewhat of an elite and rare status as a Jewish person with Roman citizenship, you know, not a first generation Jewish person with Roman citizenship who wasn't born in the city of Rome. 
all that has to be navigated. But the point Johnson wants to make is what you were saying. I just misunderstood, I think, is that what we don't want to confuse is the fact that Paul's using the Septuagint and obviously has sort of a common understanding of Greek philosophy and culture that would have just been in the air at the time uh, with the fact that he's not a philo and his training was very much more in the Jewish tradition, albeit through the Septuagint, than somebody like Philo who would have had a higher level Greek education and would be more familiar directly with Greek poets and philosophers. The way that this makes a difference, let me see if I can characterize this. That for Philo, the, the Greek understanding, philosophical understanding, is foundational to what mm -hmm. he's doing. For Paul, uh, though he is using Greek and the Greek Old Testament, there is the sense that it is founded then in Scripture, and of course, that uh, in the Word of God inclusive of Christ. Yeah, that's right. So, like a way of asking a question is what concepts is Paul employing? Which concepts is he using to think through how to interpret, say, the Torah? The concepts that Paul has readily at hand are all concepts that are going to come from his Pharisaical training and from his uh, Jewish upbringing. Whereas somebody like Philo is wanting to employ concepts from Greek philosophy and, you know, specifically. So, so you see, you know, Paul will quote a few Greek poets and things throughout his letters. And that's not problematic. But the question, and I mean, it wouldn't be even if he knew them, even if he had like firsthand studied these things, it wouldn't necessarily be problematic or anything like that. I don't want to set up that sort of dichotomy. But what's probably happening isn't that Paul is quoting these uh, philosophers and poets because he has spent a lot of time studying these things and they have formed the concepts through which he's going to interpret the scriptures as applied to the fact Christ is risen. But the concepts that he's employing come from his uh, Jewish training. So, you know, these are concepts that are found in the Psalms and in the prophets and in the Torah and in the, the Targums, what he, the schools that he has interacted with up until this point. Uh, in other words, Paul feels free, it seems, and Johnson uses the case of the Habakkuk citation at the beginning of Romans, that Paul, in fact, does not appeal to the Septuagint there, but goes to the Hebrew scriptures, mm -hmm. apparently because it fit his idea better of the meaning there of what faithfulness might mean. That's right. A very good point. I think that this points to what may be unsettling to some is to realize that uh, the Septuagint and the Hebrew texts that were float versions of the Septuagint, and then the Hebrew texts that were floating around weren't all identical, so that there was a lot of room for, say, a school of thought to work within these scriptures and make sense of what's going on there, and then to pick and choose how to teach what's most important uh, by appealing to either, as you said, a Hebrew version or a Septuagint version, that that's all on the table in a way that just in a few centuries when things get more standardized is, is not going to be the case. And so, you know, the interpretive method or the hermeneutic that Paul is using seems quite fluid. Mm -hmm. It is then not simply a pharisaical understanding, 
but it is the training that he's had combined with the uh, understanding of who Christ is and him his own role then as a kind of prophetic figure. That's right. So that Paul's response in some way to meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus is then to realize that everything the scriptures are talking about can in some way be applied to now, the present moment. Uh, I don't mean that just as in the first century, but uh, can be applied to the church or what it means to be a human post the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Johnson takes a while to elaborate what it means for Paul to be a prophetic Jew. You know, his argument is along the lines that Paul is able then to see himself as an Isaiah figure, as a figure like Jeremiah, that he doesn't have any trouble. This is how he makes sense of Torah in light of Jesus, is that it applies to the here and now. Uh, The words of God are speaking to us directly in a sense that the kingdom of God is in some sense here, even if not yet. So there are still future illusions and whatnot. There's still a tension. But that uh, Jesus is Lord, and to be able to bring that to bear on the world as it is uh, takes a prophetic move. We can inform ourselves all we want of Paul's historical setting or how he fits into this, but what we're encountering is not going to be explained by any. That's right. So I think one of the questions that he's going after is in the 20th century especially, you know, I have all the study on who the Apostle Paul is, uh, what is the historical setting of the first century and the writing of the New Testament, and how does the New Testament then, Paul's letter specifically, how do they take their meaning from that historical context? Now, of course, I don't think we would want to say that historical context isn't important, because that would be rather silly. I mean, how could we make sense of what's going on, right? Just to be good interpreters, we're going to take make sure historical context matters. But we're realizing then that Paul's, it doesn't necessarily help us a whole lot to read Paul's letters in light of a constructed biography, because the letters themselves are already highly rhetorical and making a point about what Paul himself would have, you know, taken to be some sort of universal uh, situation of Jesus's resurrection, Jesus's Lord. While he does engage in uh, rhetoric to get specific people to pay attention to the fact that Jesus is Lord, and then to have right beliefs condition right, a right way of living, and then a community that is righteous, that could almost be applied in any time because of the timelessness of Jesus. So I think there's a lot going on there that sort of frees the New Testament up from, say, uh, an approach that would make it pure history or, uh, you know, a a form of pure ethics or something like that that's totally constrained by what we can say about the first century. And so there's a dynamism that you're getting in Paul's sense of the outflowing of the Word of God that is interconnected. In other words, there is a continuum. He's going to quote from Genesis and talk about the light. But that's going to come to mean something different in the person and work of Christ. And so the Word of God is, there's no break in it, but there is the sense that it is unfolding and that it is going to cohere, in a sense, through Christ that it did not prior to Christ. That's right. 
So uh, a quote from Johnson along these lines, he says that Paul searched for and found in scripture such texts precisely because he needed to find words and images that fit the nature of his encounter with the risen Jesus and his sense of call that arose from that unexpected and transformative encounter. And so it is the richness of scripture that he's already very familiar with that he's able to draw on uh, to make sense of What's happening now? What is God doing in the world now? And that all is bound up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It would make sense then if, of course, Paul's thought is built off of these concepts that come from, uh, you know, being trained as a Pharisee, being trained in reading the, the Greek Old Testament, that those concepts then form the way Paul's able to understand and conceive of who Jesus is as the risen Lord. So this is why, I mean, you know, you read any of the letters in the New Testament, and they're just littered with quotations from the prophets and the Psalms, all describing Jesus, even if, um, you know, a biblical scholar might come along and say, well, that doesn't seem like that's the original meaning of those verses. <laughs> it's not really a problem for Paul. Right. That the meaning continues to unfold. That's right. Well, and that it forms a conceptual nexus. While we're not prophets and we're not Paul, uh, do we have a model in Paul, or how do we take Paul as model in our own reading of Scripture and our application to the contemporary setting? That's a good question. Uh, I think that I would want to answer it in two ways, simply because we do, when we say reading of Scripture, we might mean something a little bit differently than what was always meant before, that uh, there is a type of private reading of Scripture for study that is fruitful and that we might not want to make those moves. But on the other hand, say if we're preaching or we're going to do a reading of scripture, which in you know, Paul's context would have necessarily meant reading aloud and reading to people, uh, I think that I would be much more comfortable with making those moves in the sense of even what we now think of as preaching. How do we preach from the scriptures in such a way that Jesus is the risen Lord becomes the most important thing. We're prophetically saying what it means for Jesus to be risen and Lord here and now. I think that's we can take a lot from Paul's model to do that sort of thing. So, you know, pick any of the recent issues, whether it's um, combating racism and talking about justice at a time when police brutality seems rampant, uh, when the federal government obviously doesn't care what happens to black people and poor people. This, these moves that Paul makes become highly informative in the sense that the Old Testament scriptures, especially the prophets, are just littered with words saying, you know, God cares about those who are oppressed. God is going to fight on the side of those who are oppressed. And then we see that manifest in Jesus. Think of that way of reading and that way of uh, preaching or proclaiming what is truly good news about all of this is extremely valid. Let me uh, give you a counterexample. And that is, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr, who has been in the past embraced as America's theologian. Niebuhr is working from what he calls theological realism. Uh, that Niebuhr presumes that because of sin and because of the, just the reality of the human condition, that we have to begin with the reality on the ground. And we cannot presume to achieve the fullness of God's justice and love in this present context 
But that in some way is removed from us, perhaps as a universal to be gained in the future. And so that what shapes our present interaction with the world and even our practice, our ethic of Christianity is going to be the reality, the political reality and racial reality on the ground. I'm thinking here, you know, this is James Cone's critique. Uh, I think James Cone, in some ways, admired Niebuhr, but found himself bound by a theology that pictured reality in a way that it was already determined apart from Scripture. And I think what we're describing about Paul is quite the opposite of this, that literally his apprehension of reality was not on the basis of a Greco-Roman rule. It was not on the basis of the political realities of Israel. Uh, it was not on the basis of a philosophical understanding, which is not to say that he didn't interact and engage in that world, but his understanding was that the reality of who Christ is uh, laid out in scriptures and in his own apprehension, personal apprehension of the Christ, is the determinative reality that overrides this seeming present tense reality. Of course, what you get in somebody like Niebuhr, in spite of his kind of brilliance, is that when asked to do certain things with Martin Luther King Jr., a, a very simple thing. Oh, would you sign a letter to President Eisenhower asking him to protect school children from you know, black school children from the violence of the period he refused, who agreed with the kind of gradualism in the civil rights movement. In other words, I think Niebuhr may be kind of typical, maybe of the way that we've all learned theology, and it may not have been something that somebody just laid out and said, okay, this is our approach. But I think implicitly the way that we've all learned theology is on a different foundation. And is, is that the way of characterizing this? That for Paul, there is the sense that literally the foundation of his reality is then in Scripture, and that's the determinative reality. Yeah, so I uh, actually, you said, I think a lot of things that were very helpful. I'll have a response, and I want to see what you think, because I I think we're uh, in very close agreement, and I would just want to talk about some points specifically. So with, with Paul, I think we could even think methodologically about what's happening. And if we think in terms of his education and scripture, the Hebrew scriptures as being his foundational concepts that he's working with and drawing from, those concepts alone won't allow him to accept Christ. And so he's persecuting Christians. But then he has this encounter with the risen Christ, and it changes everything up. I don't know that he was exempt from having to deal with then how the truth of Jesus Christ interacts with the foundational categories that he already had any more than any of us are. So that, uh, of course, everybody's starting with a, you know foundations that are outside of or different than Christ, but that doesn't mean that they're we wouldn't necessarily need to say that they're wrong or bad. It's just what are we going to do with our concepts of how we understand the world once we have this conversion to being followers 
of Jesus as Lord and a Lord who is, you know, specific, we can talk more specifically, laid down his life for the world and now reigns. It's through this nonviolent laying down of his life that this everlasting kingdom has been established. So that's going to rework, I'm sure, a lot of the concepts that Paul's uh, entire thought is based upon, but it's not that he stops employing those concepts or that conceptual way of knowing when he begins to explain who the risen Lord is in and through those scriptures. I guess it's just to say that uh, in one sense, uh, I'm not for sure Paul has all that much of a leg up on us that his conceptual world was built off of the word of God, scriptures, uh, before Christ, because it seems, and this is some of your work too, right? That I guess we could say because of sin, because of certain distortions, that the law that should have been good has brought sin and brought death. I think we could make that same methodological move with, uh, in any of our lives, that Niebuhr probably had a conceptual framework that allowed him to navigate the world of 20th century America quite well. But if uh, we're not fully converted to Jesus in some sense that those concepts get reordered or the distortion goes away, that we truly become followers, you know, that's not going to work out very well. <laughs> and so uh, I, I guess how far is that off of what you were saying just a moment ago? I, I like the way you're nuancing it, you're, uh, that you're being very careful with it. And that is that we're all given a, you know, I mean, in just a basic reality, we're all given a sense in which we understand things and we understand the world. And it's not like, oh, we get rid of that and we become a Christian. But that is in some way that framework, uh, the way that we order things is changed up. Maybe, Maybe changed up is the wrong word, that in some way we're bound by an understanding that to break through that would be inconceivable given the world as we have it apart from Christ. That is that I don't think in Reinhold Niebuhr's understanding that black people could be accepted mm-hmm. on an equal footing with white people in the realities of 20th century America, United States. I'm not saying he didn't believe that should happen. He just thought that was an impossibility. And he was willing to delay. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. It wasn't probable. It would take time. It would unfold slowly. And, of course, Martin Luther King Jr.'s point is, well, where that leaves you is like any typical moderate Southerner who you know, they're not going to go around saying, well, we're uh, white supremacist racists, but they would say, but we have to, we can't do these things now. The present moment does not allow it. In other words, the frame of our thinking tends to be captured by the understanding that we're given. As I understanding, you're, you're nuancing this. We, we're given the basic furniture, the basic symbol system of our form of thought and it's not that we're ever going to obliterate that but that will be redeemed yeah i mean i mean i guess to use like a bad metaphor (laughs) we will see clearly of course it's not just all about seeing but no i I think that's right and in the sense uh i think what johnson's getting at with paul and i i can already think of a lot of objections to this so this will take some time to work out but is that what it would mean to be prophetic and you know to prophetically preach 
who Jesus is here and now is already to say that any oppressive system doesn't take time to work out of. We already know what the truth is and we can have right relations here and now. Now, of course, what do you do then with all the household codes that you know were just prevalent both in, in Judaism but also in the Greek and Roman world? Uh, and there definitely seems to be a hierarchical structure that is far from benign in most households. So maybe the question is, you know, is Paul's prophetic preaching of Jesus always on the order of what happens, say, in Philemon? So that Onesimus, once considered a brother in Christ, can't be considered a slave, even if Paul isn't saying what to do about slavery. Perhaps that's a way of thinking about it. But I, I would want to say that regardless of where Paul ends up and how how much that's rhetorical, how much uh, it isn't, I mean, isn't that always the case to preach Jesus is to say, well, no, we don't, we don't actually have to wait any matter of time for this to get worked out. We're not dependent upon that. Christ has already shown us the way. That it's uh, enacted now, and it's not enacted in some sort of universal sense. In other words, we don't need to have a revolution and overthrow the institution of slavery that we have more immediate access to overthrowing this thing in our own practical, uh, immediate circumstance as we uh, practice these things in the church. But we do need to overthrow slavery. <laughs> but not violently and not on the level of the way that it existed in uh, first century Rome. Uh, in other words, if the Jews in Israel, the Jewish Christians, had said, well, we're going to overthrow slavery in order to uh, institute a new kind of culture, well, actually, that's not the way you do this thing. The way you do it, you just do it. You just, in the church, you're going to overthrow slavery, not through some sort of violent revolution, but through what, you know, Yoder calls a revolutionary subordination that in some way just bypass slavery and you say like paul says about onesimus here's my very heart here's my son in the faith here is you know i hope you would treat him like you would treat me that effectively undoes slavery and then what you get historically is a valuation of humans that should not of course uh, have allowed for the continuation of that institution in the church at a minimum. I mean, I know what you're saying. I'm just afraid that what it sounds like is two white guys saying, uh, well, in the church, slavery is undone, so we don't actually care uh, what's happening in the world. Um, I just, Christians care that slavery is evil, I think. I mean, I'm okay with saying, you know, Paul got that one wrong. He didn't. He just didn't see far enough. He wasn't hadn't got it all worked out yet. I'm just afraid that sounds really bad in the present climate. No, you're right. You're right. It does. And uh, obviously, as Christians, we we oppose slavery. We oppose uh, oppression of anyone. We oppose a kind of patriarchal social system. And maybe what you're suggesting is that Paul did not come out strong enough in that opposition. Yeah, I, mean, I haven't really clearly thought through any of this, I guess, to be honest. So just thinking like, well, what would that mean? 
it's no um, secret that in early Christianity, lots of women and slaves were attracted to Christianity because they knew it was literally a safe place. And so the church definitely should be that, right? Um, it's literally an ark of salvation for people because we will offer a place of peace and safety uh, from a world that would want to kill them or to abuse them. Yeah, no, what you're, you're challenging me on, oh, okay, well, what do we do as Christians? The first step in this, I, I've had a couple, of, I've just had a conversation with a, a guy in Washington with the Mennonites. They have an office there that he, he did his dissertation on Harawas. And of course, the Harawasian answer, you know, in this discussion is that the first task of the church is to be the church. That is that the way that we're going mm -hmm. to affect change is by first of all being Christians and instituting the fullness of that reality in the church. That then is, is the means of instituting a kind of revolution. And mm -hmm. of course, his critique is, yeah, but that ends up in, in a sense, as not being enough, as not engaging the powers, as not in the Mennonite tradition. They're there in Washington arguing that you shouldn't be killing people with drones, that you should count civilian deaths, mm -hmm. that you should. In other words, here is a church that's socially engaged. And though he's, uh, he's using Harawas's approach, He's saying, yeah, but that's you need to extend that into a real-world critical engagement in the, the political and social processes that were surrounded. Is that your critique? Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if I have a fully formed critique so much as just became uncomfortable with the notion that as Christians we're going to let slavery exist <laughs> and just say, well, the church is a safe haven, though the church should be a safe haven. I mean, I, I think, I guess, I'm willing for the way we combat those things to be solidarity rather than necessarily, like, picking up swords. I'm, I'm not for sure what that means. I mean, I know what it means now. I'm just trying to think about, in the first century, what could that have meant? Now, I mean, I think, just to use your example, there's no excuse for Niebuhr not at least putting his name down, uh, probably no excuse for him not marching with Dr. King, uh, being willing to put, uh, you know, in America where you have this context of white and black, there's no excuse for white people who have encountered Jesus and the church to not put their bodies on the line for our black brothers and sisters. Uh, just black people, I don't even mean just black brothers and sisters as black Christians, I mean just black people, our, our fellow humans that are considered black in the United States. Like, we should put our bodies on the line as well and stand in full solidarity with them. And by doing that, I think we're saying, you know, this is this is an evil. Systemic racism is real, and it's an evil, and it needs to be addressed. So I haven't fully thought through, like, how to, how to deal with the, this part of the conversation. Yeah, that part of, obviously, what, you know, I was describing was a first-century reality in which slavery... Mm -hmm. And, and as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm leveling my own critique at me that, you know, it would seem that if you were in the first century, that slavery and the valuation of women and, you know, just go through the household codes, uh, that seemed to just be uh, such an accepted reality. I think at some level, 
violent revolution. You couldn't have had a civil war. You know, what could have been done? Well, what was done, I mean, just dealing with the historical reality, is that in the first century, that being a soldier, uh, you know, there were certain things that were undone in the culture and society of the church that just managed to do that without letting the realities, in air quotes, of Roman society Mm -hmm. dictate what would be done in the church. That is, and that's the sense that I think Niebuhr misses, that uh, as Christians, we don't need to wait on the world to institute the love of God. We do need to engage the powers. We do need to have a vision in which we can, we're not determined then by the realities of the world. That's right. On the other hand, that it is not the responsibility, our responsibility, to institute a world government or, you know, a political, a secular political reality that will perfectly reflect the values and ethics of the church. So I guess in some ways, I think we're doing two things. One, we're anticipating Johnson's third section because he's going to discuss whether Paul was a liberator or not. And so uh, he set the stage, and we're already anticipating that, and that will make for a good conversation to come. Uh, But two, I think we're already engaging what it means for Paul to be prophetic and, uh, you know, to talk about eschatology. So I would just assume Niebuhr's probably uh, post-millennial of some sort, just from the time that he lived. And so many Christians... Uh, I guess we could say many white Christians in the early, the first half of the 20th century, all thought in terms that, you know, eventually if we just give it enough time, if we just play our cards right, if we judge uh, our situations accurately, we'll eventually bring the kingdom of God on earth and it will look like something akin to our government. Yeah, that's, that's nonsense. So I think there's like, rightfully so, a lot of pushback against that and to say, no, we already have access to salvation. We already have access to liberation in Christ. But again, we have to nuance the the flip side of that and say, well, that doesn't mean that we're unconcerned with the plight of our fellow human beings in the world. So just because we know in Christ this is fully realized, it doesn't mean that we're unconcerned with the actual situation of people who are oppressed. And and maybe step one in this is to be able to recognize that situation. In other words, I, I think that the failure, this is sort of James Cone's point with his the cross and the lynching tree, is that no one saw the cross in the lynching tree. That they were so, and I think we're talking about white Christian racist, if you can put those three things together. Even Niebuhr, who would be a kind of northern liberal, could not put together. He Mm -hmm. never intoned the idea that lynching of black people in America is of a type of the lynching of Christ outside of the city of Jerusalem. That is that what is not captured in 
20th century American theology is the capacity to recognize that it is the voice that comes from outside of the socio-cultural realities. Mm -hmm. The one who's crucified outside of the city gives us a voice and gives us a place of understanding that is not a kind of top-down depiction of reality, but it is the voice of the oppressed. It is not the voice of the oppressor. And of course, that's the whole point of Christianity that just seems to have gotten lost, is that it is the outcasts, it is the poor, it is the, those in some way who are counted less than human in the city of man that are given first place and given a voice and counted as part of God's kingdom in the city of God. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's then a way of reading the New Testament, which discerns that is what is constantly happening is the oppressed are given a voice and the oppressed are being listened to. And the church is in some sense a community of those who are oppressed being bonded together so that evil is overcome. And that's Christianity. Yeah, that's good. And if it's not that, it's not Christianity. That's right. And so, I mean, I think in Johnson's point, is like what we have been talking about just now, is to say there's ways of reading Scripture that seem very benign because it's just academics. You know, it's just these academics in their offices surrounded by books, and they're going to imagine things about the New Testament that, end up rendering it just completely banal and useless for fighting oppression in the world today. But that's not what Paul was about. <laughs> so that's not the textual materials that we have given to us, and that's certainly not what we should think we're about. And maybe to state it or confound the problem even more, it's not that just that Christianity is turned into a harmless banality, but it's a banality on the order of Hannah Arendt's depiction of evil. Yeah, it is the banality of evil that Christianity of this misshapen form comes to, to represent. Yeah, no, absolutely. Too strong? No, no, I'm, I was there. It's actually exactly what I was conjuring up in my imagination with the banality. <laughs> In other words, we can think of banality as uh, neither here nor there. But, of course, the banality is the evil. Well, idiocy is always a uh, moral judgment. <laughs> to point out idiocy, idiocy is always to uh, point out evil, I guess. And that's sort of the age that we're, that we're living in. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.